Okay, we are at the Sukkot workshop. Welcome, everyone. So who is responsible for the timing <laughs> of all these Jewish holidays? They seem a little out of whack, like four days after Yom Kippur is Sukkot. Like, really? Like, couldn't someone have spaced this a little better? Especially, okay, now the holidays are a little more on the weekend, so it's not so difficult, but like, it's like, I don't know, I'm burnt out from Yom Kippur, and now we're just, you're hocking away at the sukkah, and we're going to do all this, we're going to go through this tonight. Like, what is the deal with, like, is there, is this a coincidence, this cannot be a coincidence. What is the relevance and the significance of the timing? The fact that Yom Kippur falls out literally, no, excuse me, Sukkot falls out literally on the heels of Yom Kippur. And they seem very different kind of vibes and holidays. Like Yom Kippur is pretty serious. Sitting there, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I'm not eating, and I'm like, oh. It's just like marathon. And like Sukkot is like, you know, walk around with the, shake a little, sit in the hut, it's very festive, you know, it's sweet. They seem very, like, almost polar opposites. So, a lot of explanations for this. Anybody want to jump in? Like, the connection, is there a connection between Yom Kippur and Sukkot? So. What do you think? So I think that it's brought down in, in somewhere I was reading that the sukkah, the hut, mm-hmm. after we come out of Yom Kippur, we're holy. We purified ourselves, we cleansed ourselves, we fasted, we asked for forgiveness, and hopefully our sins have been forgiven, and we're clean, like a newborn baby. And now, as fresh, clean neshamas, we want to preserve that. So the sukkah, when you sit mm-hmm. in the sukkah, the four walls, sort of like is coming to aid us, to help us with preserving the holiness that we have acquired through Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. And then, right after Sukkot, we're going straight into Simchat Torah. Okay, good. So, so that's one... That's, that's, that's beautiful, Hanan. Thank you. That's one idea. And other words, how do you preserve that special holiness, that we, this special high, pure level, innocent? We get back, the Talmud says, it's though we've... You know, it's like all your sins are forgiven... In fact, you know, the, what's the prayer service you say when Yom Kippur is over? Most people ran into this room to break their fast, but a bunch of crazy stayed in the other room and prayed. Marav, the evening service. Welcome, Yosef. <laughs> and um, so, what, what, what is one of the things we said in the prayer? We ask Hashem for forgiveness. That's the age-old question. You just got everything forgiven. You're, you're a blank slate. You're completely a newborn baby. Well, baby, you're a newborn. Like, what did you do wrong that you're asking forgiveness for? So there are all sorts of answers to that, but it, 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 it sort of you touched on that. So that's one idea. The other thing is, any, any other suggestions? Yeah, Jonathan? So we're living in the suckas. We're coming out of Egypt, right? So... After them before, it's like we're essentially starting on a new slate. And to me, like, leaving Egypt, it's like we're starting off fresh in terms of our spirituality because we're spiritually alive. So, just connecting the dots. Oh, that's interesting. Now, is Sukkot really celebrating leaving Egypt? Because what holiday celebrates leaving Egypt? Because we need to define this holiday. It's a little vague. It's about... What does the sukkah represent? So, like, in Egypt, it's like, you know, Hashem provides clouds for covering the sun and fire at night above. In Egypt, when did God provide all those things? In the desert. In the wilderness, after Egypt. But that's correct. We were coming out of that. We were coming out of that. Okay? And that's a little thing I want to talk about also, because 
it's when you ask most people what Sukkot celebrates, they, they can't give you a straight answer. Like Passover, what does it celebrate? Quick. Getting out of Egypt, redemption from Egypt. Shavuot. Giving of the Torah at Sinai. Suk- Sukkot. I mean, they're all harvest festivals. It's true, but they're all three. 40 years of wandering the desert? You want to celebrate that? Not really. It's just Uh, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that too. Good. Any other ideas? Let's go back to this Yom Kippur. Super serious, super sobering kind of holiday to Sukkot, which is referred to by the sages as Zman Simchatenu, the time of our rejoicing. Now, what do the sages refer to Passover as? Zman Cheritenu, Geulatenu, the time of our redemption. And what do they refer to Shavuot as? Zman Matan Teretenu, by the events that they commemorate. The time we got the Torah, when we got out of Egypt. Since it's a little unclear, what are we commemorating, Sukkot? They just say the time of our joy. What's the deal? What do you mean? What's so joyous about sitting in a hut? Or, I don't know, shaking these four species we'll talk about in a few moments. So the rabbis, and this is... um, the great Hasidic Rebbe of Slonim says this. And um, thank you for bringing us water. We appreciate it. <laughs> it's okay. No, thank you. We appreciate it. Um, so to explain the proximity of Yom Kippur to Sukkot, we know that there's basically two ways to connect with God. What are the two ways to connect with God? Well, praying is a, is a, is a methodology to, to create what kind of emotion? What are the two emotions, I should say, that we're supposed to try to have when it comes to our Creator? One is either fear, or I like to say reverence. Right? There's two types of fear. There's like fear of punishment, which is like a low level. And then there's reverence, because you think of God as so great, you're going to follow in His ways. What's higher than both of those? Love. To actually fear Hashem because you love Him. And I'm not saying I'm always on that level, and I'm not saying, but that is something we're shooting for. Yom Kippur, which one of those emotions, had, what, what would you line Yom Kippur up with? The fear slash reverence or the love? Fear, reverence. Sukkot, love. Why? How? In fact, the Rebbe of Slanim says that there are five things we refrain from doing on Yom Kippur, which gets counterbalanced on Sukkot with five positive things that we do. What are the five things we don't do on Yom Kippur we just didn't do? We didn't eat. We didn't eat leather shoes, drink, marital relations, anoint one of the oils and, and bathe. Okay? And what do we do? What are the five mitzvot of Sukkot? Be bring guests into Mitzvah to dwell in the Sukkot. We're going to be very technical. And the four species. Each one is a mitzvah. That's five. Okay? So they're counterbalanced, okay? And the Rebbe of Slonim explains that the five afflictions of Yom Kippur correspond to the five positive mitzvot. Sukkot, unlike other chagim, is devoted to love and joy, which the rabbis express by calling it Zman Simchatenu, the time of our joy. Now why? What is it about Sukkot that truly creates a sense of joy? I mean, is it so joyous to leave? It's starting to get cold. So I'm going to leave my house and sit in the sukkah. Has anyone sat like in a... It's supposed to rain Friday night. 
That's a bummer. So and and they so later so then if it doesn't rain too much I'll still sit in the sukkah but now I'm going to be cold and wet. Where's the joy in that? And and this stuff, like I don't know the four species here. I mean it's cool, but like joy. Where's the joy? Where's the love? What's that? It's supposed to represent one represents the eye, the other one represents. Okay, we're going to talk about that's that's talking about unity of the Jewish people. There's a certain joy because the Jewish people all come together. The four species, let's go through them quickly, are supposed to represent coming together because, we'll do this quickly. This is a really nice lula. MJE sells such quality merchandise. They're such reasonable prices. It's unbelievable. Um, really? Um, so this is called the lulav. Taste or smell? Does it have a taste or smell? The lulav has a taste. Yeah. It has a taste, but it has no smell. Oh no, 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 no! Okay, the hadasim has beautiful smell. In fact, in the Sephardi synagogues, they pass around hadasim on, on, Yom, on Yom Kippur to keep people uh, up a little with the smell. Okay, this has a smell, but it has no taste. Okay, one second. The the Aravot, this is the, this is called um, Hadassah and Myrtle. Smell. Take one, just pass them around. You can make the Bore Atzeba Samim. Just grab one, pass them around. Just take, take one, smell them. This one. Okay. One second. This, my friends. Has neither, Nada. nothing, man. No smell. <laughs> yeah, pass it around. No taste. No. There's only one that has both taste and smell. This has a gorgeous smell and a great taste. Is anybody? What do you do with these afterwards? After the holiday? Fermented in liquor. You fermented in liquor? Yeah. Yeah, no. Everything has to involve alcohol. No. <laughs> what? What do you do? What? Do, what? Do you, what is your friend? You candy it. What, what? What is that? You candy it. You can candy it, but a lot of people. What do you can? You can. What am I missing? What am I? Oh, don't. All right. Pass around. Pass around. Pass around. So a, lot of, a lot of people make like jam out of it, don't they? Right. Like jam preserves. Uh, people make jam. A lot of people make jam. Um, it's a lot of people good make for jam. Fertility, I heard. Say again. Oh, wait. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be good for fertility. Right. Okay. All right. Is everybody smelling and tasting and whatever it is? Okay. Let's pass them back. So Nava, Nava mentioned this idea. How do you actually fulfill the mitzvah, guys? Shaking. No, no, no. You do not fulfill the mitzvah by shaking. Or putting them together. Everyone likes to shake, and it's a nice thing to do. Putting them together. You have to have them what's called an aguda. What's aguda? I have another one, so we don't need it. But aguda means they have, there has to be unity. So how do we create unity? We put the uh, dasim over here on the right. Who's got my aravos? Who stole my aravos? By the way, they're called the willows. They're called willows. And these are supposed to represent the four types of Jewish people. How do they represent the four types of Jewish people? Because taste is supposed to represent... Good deeds? I think taste is good deeds. 
Taste is good deeds and smell is wisdom, Torah wisdom. So there's some Jews that have lots of good deeds, but maybe not so learned. Other Jews are more learned, maybe not as involved in good deeds. Some have got both. Will's got both right now. No, 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 that's something else. And then the last, and then some don't have either. So what's the solution, the rabbis in the Talmud say? Got to put them all together. The only way to fulfill the mitzvah is to put them as an agudachat. If I do this, and I spend all the money, and I get the best merchandise, it doesn't matter. I have not fulfilled the mitzvah. You only fulfill the mitzvah when they come together. Who came up with this? Who came up with this? Who decided to like, put these things together? Okay, so this is based, I don't have any sources. This is like not typical of me. There is a, there, the Torah says, Ulakachtem lachem pri adar. And you shall take for yourself the pre, the fruit, eight of the tree, Hadar, which is beautiful. And this is a classic example. In fact, Maimonides actually uses this as an example of how the biblical text is unknowable without the oral tradition. Because if I said to you, take a, a, a beautiful fruit, I don't know how many of you would have come up with this. A lemon. <laughs> okay, it's a bumpy lemon, and it's called an etrog, but... And there are many interpretations the Talmud brings down why, for thousands of years, all Jews ran after these. And all the Torah says is pre eats hadar. The only thing the Torah says is take a pre-fruit, eats of the tree, which is beautiful. Now, I don't know how many people would have chosen this, but this is, according to the oral tradition, what the Torah was referring to when it said that. And these are also referenced in the Bible as well, to be placed together. And that's how you fulfill the mitzvah, literally just by putting it together. Now, technically, um, so why do we shake it? So there's a lot of interesting Kabbalah that we are, we shake all the different directions to sort of bring God's, what's called in Hebrew, his shefa, his, his blessing and his bounty down from the heavens. And we use what? Because you mentioned, no. What did I do? You were just Justin. You got replaced. I am not Justin. No, he- Oh, you were, because Justin just said, Justin said this was a harvest, period. Sorry. So why are we taking, we're taking fruits, we're taking things from the natural world that was just harvested. Imagine you're a farmer in Israel, and you take the bounty, and you take God's blessing, you put them together, and you pray for a good year. But, what's going on over here? Um... But th- this kind of goes back to what Hanan said before, because we've just attained a very, very high spiritual level on Yom Kippur. How do you maintain it? And you want to get higher. Now, can you get higher than Yom Kippur? The answer is yes, because we talked about what's the highest emotion that we can cultivate for Hashem. It's not, lo- it's not fear and reverence, it's love. But fear and reverence is cultivated in Yom Kippur and on, on Sukkot. And how do we end Sukkot? Simcha's Torah, the word Simcha's joy. We dance and celebrate the Torah, which is a later kind of holiday that developed with the biblical holiday, Shemina Etzer. I'll get to that soon. Now, so how does this take it to the next level, and why is it on the heels of Yom Kippur? Because after we finish connecting with Hashem on the fear-reverence level, we now connect with Hashem on a more joy level. But what's so joyous? Because we can't even define what this holiday is. We know Passover celebrates the redemption and Shavuot, the giving of the Torah, and we can't quite put our finger on what Sukkot really celebrates. So, and I, you guys have heard this before, so you'll have to sit through it again. 
but it doesn't really celebrate leaving Egypt, and it doesn't celebrate getting into Israel. So what's in between? The journey. It celebrates the journey, and that's what the hut's about. Because what did our ancestors live in during the journey? They lived in these huts. So we leave the permanence of our homes, and we enter these huts. And we're doing what? What are we saying when we're doing that? And what's, where's the joy in that? It would seem like, because it's, it's a little of a... What's that? It's like a summer home kind of thing. You're going out. It's campy. Also, God taking care of us in the desert. Like, okay, but I assure you, okay, to us it seems a little campy and vacationy, but clamping. <laughs> what was it for our ancestors? These huts. What were they? Survival. They were just tents. In survival, where? In the desert. So, who was really protecting them? The tent. What's really protecting us all year? Our homes. What are we really saying when we leave the permanence of our homes and we go into these flimsy huts? And God will protect us in the desert. And get this is all about faith in God and not in materialism and not in the buildings we build ourselves that we think. You know, and I don't want to get too negative, but like once in a while, something happens, some terrible tsunami, and all of the structures and edifices that we've built and placed so much faith in, especially in technology, like everyone's going to Uba, Abu Dhabi now, like because it's like the tallest building in the world, and it's like, it's the coolest thing in the world, right? That's not the coolest thing in the world. The coolest thing in the world is to understand what really gives permanence to our lives. And that's not anything in the physical world. That doesn't mean we should shun physicality and we should live in poverty and sleep in a hut somewhere. But we need to leave the permanence of our home one day, one week out of the year and just remember at the end of the day who is really protecting us, who sustained our ancestors in the wilderness. Hashem. Right? It's, it's, all, it's all Hashem. And, and there's a certain joy in living in, in actual reality and not in some <clears throat> sort of illusion. What's that? Totally. Yeah. You can't, and sometimes it's hard to feel that gratitude when you're surrounded by it, you need to leave it a little. And you need to get a little cold and a little this and a little that. And, and I don't know how many people do this in Manhattan, but the sukkah was not really designed to simply be eaten in. We Jews like to eat a lot, so we've got, we're building a sukkah so we can eat in the sukkah. What does it say in the Torah you're supposed to do in the sukkah? Well, live in the sukkah. That's why I, was a, I had a friend who was a rabbi in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And he, he uh, a lot of husker... Uh, football fans in Omaha, they, some crazy football guy wanted to know if he could schlep his uh, flat screen into the sukkah. Because you want to watch the game in the sukkah. So you think, oh, that's like sacrilegious. And the rabbi said, no. If that's the way you spend your Sundays, and that's the way most Nebraskans spend their Sundays, he said, then you should probably build, put the flat screen in the sukkah. Because the Torah doesn't say eat in the sukkah. The Torah says, basukot shivat yamim. In the sukkah, you shall dwell for seven days. And that's how you dwell. You watch the Husker game, so bring it, bring it in. So that's why it's harder here, because it's colder. How many people are going to feel comfortable sleeping in their, the sukkah in the back lot? Do you even have a sukkah in your building? How many guys have sukkahs in your building? And, all right, so you have a sukkah in your building? In the back lot. Yeah, we always had one, and they're doing some work there in us and that. We have one? That's awesome. You're going to sleep in it? I'm just saying it is considered a mitzvah if you can do it. If you can do it, you're supposed to actually dwell in the sukkah and not just visit the sukkah. 
right? Now, um, yeah. Are you sleeping in your <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've tried, and I do endeavor to do that. Yes, I will try. Sometimes I'm successful. Sometimes there's no mitzvah to feel, what's the word? Um, right, there's no mitzvah to feel tsar. You know, anguish, like physical. So if it starts raining, you know, there's one exception, which is the first night of Sukkot, where you're supposed to really try to eat in the sukkah at least. But if it's pouring, pouring rain, you wait a certain amount of time. If you wait and stop, you don't have to eat in the sukkah if it's wet. Uh, a mitzta'er is, is, is pater min the su- min, from the sukkah, the Talmud says. Mitzta'er is someone who's uncomfortable. So if I, you know, whatever, I sometimes have issues sleeping. So I'm like, ah, well, this is freaking me out. So I have to go in. So you do the best you can. In Israel, most people sleep in their sukkahs because it's gorgeous there. It's like pretty. Yeah, I know. So the, the rabbis in Masechet and Berkevot say that this world is like the first door, like a hallway towards the next world, and it's temporary. So I was thinking about how the sukkah is also a temporary living yeah. place, and so too our bodies for our soul, for our neshama, is also a temporary, not a permanent yeah, place for the neshama. Yeah. So really, in this journey, I think what Sukkot is trying to teach us is that this life is not forever. You know, David Amal, King David says that, you know, we live 70 years in Bivorach, Monim Shana, maybe 80 in Tilim. And maybe that's that's also something that we can learn from Scott is that this life, you have to make the best out of this life, out of this journey, and try to... So, what I, so first of all, Hanan, what you're saying is very beautiful, and I think the Sukkah does symbolize that. But I want to balance it out, because we're supposed to enjoy the journey. So we do have a destination, and this world is really a prose door. It's just an alleyway. And somebody once came to a great rabbi's home, the Chafetz Chaim, and they thought like he was in the middle of moving because he didn't really own much furniture. And when he was asked, where's like the furniture? And he said, I don't know, when you go on vacation, do you take your furniture with you? And they said, no. He says, well, that's this world. Now, not everyone can live on that level, and I do think it's important. Did you follow that? (laughs) He was basically living, he was kind of what Hanan was saying. He was very much living, looking at this world as a very temporary kind of like alleyway towards something, the final destination, the world to come. Um, But we are supposed to savor the moment. We are supposed to enjoy the journey. And I think that's what Sukkot also celebrates, is not only to only celebrate sort of the happy occasions in our lives, those milestones when we get there, but if you don't like your job while it's going on and you're just waiting for the promotion or you don't like the school and you're just doing it for the... Di- Life could be a very miserable place to go through if you're just waiting for that. Like, And I, and I think Judaism... This is really one of the things I wanted to share. It's Sukkot is not really celebrating a definitive point in Jewish history. It's celebrating the journey. And that's why we have um, the famous Ushpizen, it was actually a movie that came out a bunch of years ago. Anybody see it? It's called yeah, Ushpizen. I saw it. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. crazy. It's a movie. About like a thousand dollar etrogue. Do you remember that? Yeah, you put the thing in the yeah. Was, yeah, so it was interesting. Ushpizen is uh, Aramaic for uh, guests. And according to our more mystical tradition, we have a different guest that enters our sukkah every night of the holiday. The seven nights, so you have Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Joseph, and then Moshe, his brother Aaron, 
and David, that's it. It ends with him. So this Rabbi Binyamin Ferrer, as a contemporary rabbi, made the suggestion. He gave this whole idea that Sukkot is really celebrating the journey. Even though what you're saying is true also, Hanan, that we do live for something greater than this physical material world. We're supposed to still celebrate the journey, and that's why the choice of the sages as to who should be our time-honored spiritual guests were those seven. Because what do those seven have in common? Each one of them lived with a dream that was never fully realized. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all had this promise that was made to them. That that what what was the promise? That if you keep the Torah, I'll keep you. And they God enacted this covenant with them, but they never got to see like the ultimate, you know, realization of the dream. They were the ones to whom the promise was initially made. Joseph was the next. What happened to Joseph's bones? They were carried with them from Egypt to Israel, but he never got to see the whole thing. And then Moses and Aaron brought the Jewish people through the wilderness, but they never even entered the land of Israel. David did. In fact, David was the first to conquer the land and establish the first kingdom, right? And his, right? But that's where it ended. Shlomo, his son, who built the first temple, is conspicuously absent from the Ushvizim. Because that's the beginning of the realization of the dream. And the rabbis are trying to make a point that we're all living with something that we're looking forward to, but we have to try to find meaning and purpose in that. Recognizing it's not the end-all, be-all, but there's something very, very valuable about the actual journey. Also interesting, and this has to do with happiness and joy, and I wrote this in my first book about trying to find joy and happiness by living in accordance with reality. Let's talk a little about the schach. We already put up our sukkah, but we didn't get the top part on yet because we heard it was going to rain and we figured we'd wait for it to rain and then we'll put the schach on top. That's called schach. You know what schach is? just like roofing. Funny. But it is. it has to be made of what? On the top of the sukkah? What's that? It could be just branches. It could be wood. It has to be non-attached foliage. Good. It has to be something which is of natural. Okay, now, another interesting halacha, which is that um, the shade in the sukkah has to exceed the amount of sun that comes in. A little light has to come in, but more shade than light. Again, what does that mean? And by the way, if the schach is too dense that the rain cannot fall into the sukkah, that invalidates it. Okay, all your hard work is at the window. You need to be able to see the light of the stars and the moon. Now, what does this all represent? It's a beautiful idea. Because when you sit in the sukkah, and by the way, you're all invited here this weekend. The holiday starts Friday night. And um, if anybody needs a a meal in a sukkah... um, Aaron and Leora are going to be hosting meals in the sukkah. And we're also going to be doing our kiddishes on Saturday and Sunday. In the sukkah is a beautiful sukkah. Should have done this. Why did I do this class in the sukkah? During COVID, we did. We had basically a sukkah all year during COVID. Basically, because they built it for them, they just left it. So we had like a little, you know. But anyway, by sitting in the sukkah and seeing some light piercing through the roof, we're basically reminded of the great expanse of the sky above us. And we're leaving the permanence of our homes to sit in this hut. 
so we can look up and see something beyond ourselves. And Rabbi Salvechik, who's this rabbi I always quote all the time, hello Rabbi Ezra, Rabbi Salvechik said that above this tiny structure lies a great expanse of sky, an infinite universe. And that's why the schach, the roofing, can't be too thick. You need to be able to see the sky. But the schach must also create more shade than sunlight. What does that mean? It has to block out more sun than it lets in. To demonstrate, says Rabbi Salvechik, and I'm going to quote, to demonstrate, he says, our myopic nature our inability to see through the finite physical world and perceive the true source of everything. To see God beyond the physical world, you have to be a little farsighted, he says. And one of his students, Dr. Arnold Lustiger, was a scientist and also a student, Rabbi Salvechik, he put it this way, it's a beautiful line. He says, even the enlightened scientist peering at the sky with huge telescopes is conceptually nothing more than a small sukkah. As much as we progress scientifically, we will never reveal the great mysteries of creation. And uh, Einstein said this very famously, that the most, one of the most important emotions for us to cultivate as humans is mystery. And to always be like a kid when you're studying the world around you, to just be in awe and to be like, wow, that's amazing. Never to think like we know it all, we figured it all out. The sukkah, therefore, is to create more shade than light, to manifest our inability to see God behind nature. And he says, and I quote, outside of the scientist's immediate environment, outside of his limited understanding, outside of his confining sukkah, lies the mystery of infinity. The schach is just too thick. Man cannot see beyond it. So we often experience nature. We don't always see it for what it truly represents. It's a great line from Bob Dylan, he said, some people feel the rain, others just get wet. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, this is the teaching that the Rub was saying, is that we experience, we see the physical world, and we attempt to master it, to study it, right? And through physics and chemistry and science and biology, and we, and we want to do that so we can manipulate the world and make it better, right? That's what God commanded Adam to do, the kifshua to conquer the forces of nature and to perfect an imperfect world. But we have to still see it as a revelation of God. If we pull God out of the whole picture, we've lost the whole point. And all of this is hinted, says Rabbi Salvechik, in the roofing of the schach. Uh, they tell a very cute story of a great rabbi who lived in the 1950s in Israel, the Chazanish. And they said that when they installed street lamps, uh, in Bnei Brak, very religious section in, in, in Tel Aviv, actually, where he lived, he told his students it was very important development because there's something profound you can learn from a street lamp. He said, so the closer you get to the light, the smaller your shadow becomes. The closer you get to the light, the smaller your shadow. Which is really a metaphor because how, did we, how does the Torah describe Moses? As the humblest. I would be like the last word I would use to describe the greatest prophet, probably one of the greatest intellects. You call him the humblest, right? And because the more, the closer you get to the light, the more of the light that you can perceive, the smaller we realize who we are. Einstein almost had that verbatim in his memoirs. He says that the one thing he knows from all of his scientific inquiry and exploration is that man is just but a speck in relation to the cosmos. 
But it takes a great person to be able to see that. Because you got to get a little closer to be able to see how far we are. And this may sound like a, like a, like a, a very sobering thought, but this can really inspire true happiness. Because when you feel like you're, some, you're part of something grandiose and great, that's unbelievable. Right? You feel like you're part of something, like you, you feel you're connected to a force beyond nature, that our lives don't start and end with our small little worlds in our little sukkahs, getting up and going to work and coming home and growing older and eventually passing on. But like we're part of something much, much bigger. And Judaism is giving us access to that. And it's all hinted symbolically by leaving our homes. And again, it's harder in Manhattan to feel this. And that's why we go out into nature so we can peer through the schach and get a little glimpse of the sky above us. So I challenge you guys this weekend, wherever you're going to be, hopefully you'll get to a sukkah and you're invited here to be able to just take a minute and look through and see what you can see. Make sure you can see a little something, but it is also providing more shade than anything else. Um, okay, any comments, just questions about any of this? That was fun? beautiful. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's, um, thank you. That's very kind. Um, one or two just other ideas before we, before we finish up. Um, I have to tell a story. Um, and my, my kids have heard the story, but, um, and this is based on another beautiful idea from Rabbi Lamb, um, about the sukkah. Uh, when I was in, um, in Italy, I spent a little time in Venice many years ago and the, the, the shtick of the Chabad rabbi in Venice is that he's got a little sukkah on his gondola. Uh, it's his shtick and he has it on his card. His name is Rami. He's been there for 30 years. He's a very holy, great guy. Chabad rabbi, of course. Um, and somebody asked him a question. I was there with him and he said, can you, can you build a, uh, a sukkah on a gondola, like on a boat? And he said, yeah, that's the whole point, actually, of the holiday, which is, remember, the journey, right? And Rabbi Lamb, of blessed memory, has this incredible essay about the journey. And I was sharing this with somebody, and this, this happened actually in my brother's sukkah, my brother lives in, in Englewood, New Jersey. And she, this woman passed away, but at the time, she died when she was 102. Grandma Blanca, it's my sister-in-law Amy's um, grandmother. And um, so I'll just never forget the story. Um, my wife was, uh, Jill was like doing the Lula Venetro thing. She was in my brother's sukkah and she was praying and she was like saying the blessing. And, and Grandpa, Grandma Blanca she was 99 or 100 at the time. She was super sharp. And she had fled Germany in 1936 when she was a teenager. And she saw my wife reciting the blessing over the love and etrog. And she was like sort of fascinated that a woman would do this. She came from a different generation. She didn't think like the women were doing anything Jewishly. And, she, and, 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 and Jill saw her and she said, oh, Grandma Blanc, would you like to do it? We'll, we can do it together. And she became very excited and she took the Lulav and etrog. And, um, and she, she took it, I was watching this, she smelled it. And the second she took a whiff, she burst out into tears. She just started cr- crying. And then she started saying, she just started like crying and saying, we had su- she was telling this to my wife, she said, we had such a beautiful life in Germany until Hitler came. Our life was so beautiful until Hitler 
and and it was just like it was like crazy and my wife was like trying to give her like a little comfort and she said Grandma Blanca you know Hitler's gone and we're here and then they made the bracha together but she started she said that she blurted that out when she smelled you know smell is a very very powerful um yeah, it, it, it just brought up all of this stuff from her childhood. And um, the truth is, that's really why we're here. <laughs> How did we survive and Hitler didn't? You know, that's the greatest revenge, they say. And that's because we've maintained our traditions and we're still observing these mitzvot. Uh, the British historian Arnold Toynbee said that what the world can learn from the Jew is how to live in the diaspora. And he foresaw a time when other minorities and ethnicities would be forced not to live in their own country, their native indigenous country, and they would fail to preserve their culture. And Rabbi Lamb says that's another hint in the Ushbizim. He talked about the guests, the time-honored guests. Who are they again? Remember them? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, and David. Very good. Okay? So this is what Rabbi Lamb says. It's a little of a stretch, but it's kind of nice. About the Ushbizin in terms of Jewish history. He says, Abraham was told Lech Lecha to go. To leave his birthplace to travel to some unknown place. Which, of course, was Israel. Isaac, although he remained in the same place his whole life, he was made to feel almost like a stranger in his home, never understood even by his own wife and children. Jacob had to run away 14 years from his brother Esau. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, lived out his life in a foreign land. Moses also had to flee before Pharaoh. You see the common denominator here? Aaron, in this critical juncture of his life, was left alone to lead the Jewish people when Moses ascended. Harsinai didn't come back. That's when they worshipped the golden calf. David spent much of his life running. This is really what, what, what the sukkah represents is sort of the Jew on the run, if you will. Because it's mobile, it's portable. And Judaism was meant to be mobile. It was meant to be portable. And that's what's kept us going. Because if we can only live as Jews in, in a very specific kind of thing, we're never going to make it. We need to know how to take it on the run. And Judaism was always meant never to be... In fact, Rav Hirsch, one of the great... Another German-Jewish philosopher said that that's the reason why God gave the Torah in the wilderness and not in Israel. Why wouldn't he give the Jewish people the Torah in Israel, the holiest place? Torah is so holy, give it in a holy place to teach because then they'll say, well, when I'm in Israel, I'll keep the Torah. You know, I'll be Jewish in synagogue, but not in my home or not in the office place. And that's really one of the great messages of Judaism, that, that Torah was meant to be mobile. Torah was meant to be taken everywhere universal. we go. It's universal, and it's also supposed to be applied literally in every facet of human existence, and not to be kept in one little, one little area. Um, I'll just end with this, a very, very famous teaching um, about the tabernacle. Every item in the tabernacle had poles, because in order to transport the tabernacle from one place in the wilderness to the next, they didn't just pick it up, the item itself, it was on a pole. Everything. The mizbech, the altar, the menorah, they all had poles, and then when they would rest it down, they'd pull the pole out and get to work on it. Except, 
Except one item, the ark, had poles, but they were permanently attached to the ark. They couldn't come out. They weren't meant to come out. And the Torah says explicitly, Lo Yosur, Memenu, you're not permitted to remove them. You see the symbolism in there? It has to always be able to be moved at a moment's notice. Because the Torah was in the ark. That's where the luchot, the tablets were that Moses brought from Sinai. The Torah was never meant to be confined to any one place. So the idea that, like, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be committed to my Judaism over there, or at this time in my life, or in this place, New York City, this is a place where you accomplish, you know, your profession, you become a successful career person. It's not a place for Judaism. I mean, I'm not saying anybody says that, but like, we, we, we bifurcate our lives, and that's another great lesson that I wanted to share with you, is not to allow the Torah to be confined to any one place. Um, and the truth is, we've been able to not only survive, but spread some great monotheism, ethics, and morality, and spirituality, and holiness, because we've kept on to our Jewish traditions wherever we found ourselves. And all of this stuff is supposed to kind of represent that as well. Um, I'm just going to keep babbling. Any questions about the holiday? Yeah, please. It's not a question, but I, I, I never really heard of it. I never heard it like that, where the Torah shouldn't be confined to any one given place. And I guess the way that I'm kind of experiencing it is like when I'm traveling somewhere, I feel like the more mitzvahs I'm keeping when I'm kind of like off in a distance, like let's say I'm in Canada, like in the mountains, and like I'm the only Jew for 15,000 people, like, I feel like when I keep Torah in those places, it keeps me. Yeah. And it's, like, easier when I'm in New York. There's so many Jews here. But I guess recently I've been experiencing when I traveled to other places, like, spent a month in Peru. And when I was there, I was, like, a Jew. Like, I'm eating kosher and, like, it just shifted the whole thing. Yeah. I, I just, I never heard that the Torah was meant to be mobile, and now it makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we, we need to spend our lives but you, but and it's interesting what you're sharing. How, how often when we go to a place that's less Jewish, but we still do Jewish, it makes us feel that much more connected than let's say doing it in a, in a place that's a little more convenient, you know. But um, that's the beauty of Judaism. It's it's it, it, it was not designed for any one spot, any one place. Now there's an ideal place to be Jewish. That's called Israel. You know, like, but, you know, I always like to say it's better to work out in a gym, but you can work out at home. You know, it's better to pray in a synagogue, but you could pray at home, too. You know, a lot of people, I think, during COVID felt this a lot, that they were trying to keep up the Jewish practices and and mitzvot, even though we didn't have a lot of the apparatus that we normally are used to doing. But those moments really help, I think, lift us and remind us of who we really are. Um... And there are times when we're just not going to be able to control it. Sometimes you just have to go somewhere, business takes you wherever. And I've always been a big advocate of this. You can be Jewish anywhere in the world. You can keep kosher. I'm not saying every place has kosher food, but you can bring stuff with you and you can, you know, you, you can do whatever, whatever it is that mitzvah that you want to observe can be done anywhere. Um, I'm not saying to make it so hard for yourself all the time, you know. Can you enter, can you live in a soka before Sukkot? Like you, you can't have matzah before Pesach. You can. It's the only thing is, um, first of all, it's not a mitzvah, whatever. 
But the other thing is you want to make sure that it's clear you're building the sukkah for the mitzvah and not just because you like an outside hut, a little summer home, a little patio situation for your family. You know, um, weren't you saying something like that? About that, that uh, if you build the sukkah too early, we were just discussing this. It has to be clear that it's for the holiday. It's more than 30 days before that you have to... Right, in fact, uh, does anybody know when the holiday should actually be celebrated? When did we leave Egypt? Like, if this is really celebrating the journey, maybe we should have started, started in the spring. And a lot of people are like, oh, I'd prefer the spring than this. So some of the rabbis say that it was purposely chosen so that nobody would mistake us going into our huts as just doing something because it's like aesthetically pleasing. We're doing it for these theological ideas that we've been discussing to fulfill the mitzvah. You know? Um, yeah. By the way, you're all invited. I'm going to finish in a minute. Yosef's going to be doing a Sukkot, pre-Sukkot musical meditation right in back of me um, in, the next, in, in a couple of minutes when we're done here. Yeah, question? Tracy, yeah. Um, I have a question on the, on sort of the, the pragmatic aspect of being somewhat mobile. Uh, when it comes to different hemispheres, like North and South Hemisphere, do, the, do you adjust the holiday? I've never been to Southern Hemisphere. Do you adjust the holidays so that you still have the same experience of Pesach in spring, which is the opposite side of the calendar, or do you leave it as the we, we leave it. We leave it. It's a very good question. We leave it. Um, in other words, even though the weather is quite different, um, but it's not weather dependent. It's That's really the other answer to that question. Yeah. Um, no, the question that you asked earlier about like why is the to- like it's it's like in the winter it's not such nice weather and whatever like in Israel it's pretty nice weather because like the time like the calendar is generally like sort of structured around Israel. Okay. Right now you do have an issue when you cross the international date line. You you get a big issue when um, you know if you're on a fast day or Shabbat or things like that. That does create some some kind of interesting questions. But uh, but just to answer your question, we, we there are dates in the Torah. Um, does anybody know this is exactly equidistant to what holiday on the on the Jewish calendar? Does anybody know Sukkot is the fifteenth of the Hebrew month of Tishrei, which is exactly six months from the fifteenth of the month of Nisan, which is Passover. And there are all sorts of interesting halachic parallels from the first night of Passover and the first night of Sukkot. Like a mitzta'er, someone who's uncomfortable physically, eating too much matzah, doesn't have to do that, except the first night. Someone who's uncomfortable sitting in the sukkah, it's too cold, it's too wet, except the first night. There's something special about the first night. There's some interesting parallels between the 15th of Tishrei and the 15th of Nisan. Six Um, months apart? Exactly six months apart. Yeah, they're literally bookends on, on, yeah. I like to make a comment. If like if despite the weather, the people sit in the sukkah will feel like what our ancestors did thousands of years ago, how they endured, and they'll feel the same way. Yeah, if we have bad weather. Yeah, yeah. yeah but what Ezra was just it's saying like depends where you live. Yeah. So if you lived in Poland, like a lot of our bubbies and zadies did for a long time, or in Russia, so the. I mean, it's not pleasant most of the year there, but it's uh, <laughs> certainly during this time, it's not at such a pleasant time. Here in the United States, it's still quite nice. Um, but um, in Israel, it's actually beautiful. 
uh, so maybe that doesn't you know apply as much. But yeah, we're trying to tap into that a little. It's a good point. Like if people live in a, like a sukkah and spite the bad weather, if they just like they'll just feel if they just despite the bad weather get through it, they'll be like endurance, <laughs> like our ancestors did. Could be, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, you can bring a heater in, right? If you, need you can bring a heater in. There's no mitzvah to be uncomfortable in the sukkah. Right. Just don't burn it down. Yeah. yeah, and by the way, if somebody's not like feeling well, heater. you know, if, if you're not feeling well, is the cold going around? I'm saying you don't, you don't need, you don't need to sit in the sukkah then, you know. But it is a mitzvah to do so. Manhattan is really a challenging place for sukkot, so we have one here above. Can you sleep in the sukkah above? I'm not going to say anything. Um, have we ever had anyone sleep in the sugar bottle? Lil is canceling his hotel over there. Yeah. <laughs> we slept in this room when we got locked out of our apartment. Um, but that's another story. Yeah, I guess yeah. like uh, the mitzvah of uh, living in sukkah, does that yeah. mean meal? Does that mean sleeping? Does it mean thing. one day? Does it mean seven days? Seven days. Yeah. Doesn't mean you can't leave it. But I guess like you can go to work, you know, you can. I'm saying on the holiday itself, just so everyone knows, by the way, and I'll answer your question in a minute. Just because I, 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 you reminded me, the holiday starts Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday. That's the holiday, and then you have what's called Cholamoy, the intermediary days where you could work, but we, it's still a quasi holiday. We try to dress a little nicer. It's still part of the holiday of Sukkot. We still eat all our meals in the Sukkah, but you can go to work and, and so on and so forth. And then the last days are Shmini Atzeret and Simchas Torah, uh, which is the following. Friday night. Is it the following Friday night? Yeah, the following Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday. And we're going to have a lot of dancing and celebrating and all that fun stuff. But go ahead. Holiday followed by festival, basically. So it's like the holidays yeah, yeah. are like the bookends, and then you have the intermediary days, Cholamoe. Yeah. Okay, and then um, as far as like practically speaking, like living in New York, uh, we'll be sleeping at home. Yeah, we'll be like not every night. We'll be eating meal here. So like, how do we keep the mitzvah? Then? So you can build a sukkah in your in your backyard at home. If you go home, you mean home like in the city? Oh no, like my apartment. Right. Yeah. So you can. No, I mean like I mean like. Uh, well, you like, you have yeah. to just do the best you can. Yeah, Manhattan yeah. is. Yeah. A, I would be. I'm just going to be perfectly honest. It's hard to feel Sukkot in Manhattan as much. You go to the burbs, you can feel Sukkot a lot more because it's easier. People have their own property. Um, you could petition your building and ask them if they have a, either on the roof or a lot in the back. If you can get a couple of uh, Jewish neighbors together and build a sukkah, that's what we did in our building. Happens not to be available this year, which is a bummer. But for the last X amount of years I've been living in the building, we've had our own sukkah. I never slept there. I, don't, I wouldn't feel comfortable sleeping on a Manhattan street, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. That's just me. <laughs> you know. Yeah, do the best you can. You do the best you can. Yeah. 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 You can always find like restaurants, like sometimes like often have sukkahs, and you could probably just like sit in there and for eat meals. Oh yeah, and they have I'm the, like, in terms the of eating. Seating now, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tracy. Question on the intermediary days. I think I heard somewhere that they're saying different kind of work that you can do on yeah. the intermediary days. Only present like disparaging loss. Yeah. You're supposed to try to minimize the work you do during the intermediary days and only do work that's necessary. But if your work, like your occupation, how you earn a living, and you can't get off, then what you do in that work is necessary for the job, then you can do that. But if it's not, 
or, you know, then you try to sort of curtail. It's a little of a quasi-period, Cholamoy. So what do we wish each other on Sukkot, on the holiday? What do we say? It's pretty straightforward. Chag Sameach. So I want to wish you guys Chag Sameach, a happy and healthy and sweet holiday. If you guys want to join us for the um, musical meditation with Yosef, and please join us this Friday night at 6.30 for Friday Night Lights, Saturday morning at 9.30, and there'll be no service here Sunday night, but the Jewish Center will have one, and then on the third floor, and then back on Sunday morning here at 9.30 as well. Uh, Chag Sameach, everyone. The whole week. Every day of the whole week. Every day of the whole week. Oh, not on Oh, it's really good. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Shabbos lends itself to that a little bit. Yeah. But we have this nice story. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Are you nice to Yeah. You're bringing your brother Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're going to have to first go through the Yeah, exactly. All right. It's always a good method. They say, like, in terms of, like, readings, they say, like, right? Like, you know, the first sentence of everything. Yeah. And then, like, we do the whole thing out. Yeah. And I always like that. Yeah, Wow. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So it's like so long. That's why I'm Oh, recording? Still going?